Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Uh, I love, love, love Christ Community Church. It's a great place, okay? And actually, Clayton said something last week. I listened to the message, and he said... You know, if God is your father, then the church is your family. Well, you know what? You have a really good family as a church. You really do. And you do. You should clap. And and when I talk about family a lot of times, I talk about the fact that parents, we need to lead. (laughs) Okay? We can't let the kids, you know, run ragged over us. And you know what? You have a great leader in Jim, and you have great leaders on your staff. Great, great people. So anyway, you, you did well by coming here. I'm just telling you that right now. Also by uh, coming to uh, Aurora and DeKalb, 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 I'll get it, it sounded southern for me, and, uh, and Streamwood as well, so welcome, glad to be here. Uh, today we're going to talk about turning our houses into homes. You know, we can live in a house, and it might even be nice on the outside, but sometimes on the inside it's not. I, I grew up in a home like that. My dad was an alcoholic, my two brothers are alcoholics. My grandfather on my mom's side died of alcoholism. Uh, I got married to Kathy. She came from just kind of a dysfunctional family. So, you know, we thought it was going to be easy. It wasn't necessarily easy. And I think at the beginning, our, you know, we had a house, but we really didn't have much of a home. And there was a husband and a wife, and the husband was, was ill. And so he went to the doctor. The wife took him. And the doctor brought him in, and the doctor talked to him for a long time, actually, for, you know, for going into the medical world, and uh, poked and prodded and urine and blood samples and, I mean, the whole bit. Finally, about an hour and a half went by. Now, he had gone and seen other patients and come back, but you know, he seemed concerned, so finally the, the woman gets up, and just as she gets up, the door opens. It's the doctor with kind of a grim look on his face and said, can you come with me? Takes her into his office. She can see her husband kind of changing clothes. And he said, your husband is severely ill. And in fact, he's so ill that if you don't do exactly what I tell you to do in the next 12 months, I'm afraid your husband's going to die. And nobody wants to hear that. Well, what should I do? Well, first of all, he he doesn't eat well. And I know you both work, and I know you both have young kids, and you're stressed uh, from what he says. But, you know, he's eating that sugary cereal, and he says he doesn't cook breakfast. So is there any way you could get up earlier? I think it would be an hour earlier from what he said. And could you just fix him a nice warm breakfast. He said he liked ham and eggs. Um, if you could do that, that'd be great. And furthermore, if you could also do all the discipline with the children, because uh, I, I know th- it's stressful and I know it's chaotic with the age of your kids, but your husband has a lot of stress from work and he has a lot of things going on on the inside. So if there's any way you could just kind of handle the children this for 12 months and then you can go back to doing however you guys do it, but let him just kind of play with the kids. No nagging or negativity also. So in the next 12 months, no nagging to your husband, no negativity. She's like, wow, I mean, that's not going to be easy. And then one last thing, with kind of a gleam in his eye, if, if if you could just please his every whim for the next 12 months. I think he'll be fine, and I actually, I think, you know, he'll be healed of uh, what's going on with him, and, you know, you can kind of go back to doing life, but you're going to have a healthier husband. So she's a little stunned. She goes out the door. She picks up her husband, who's in the waiting room. They get into the car. They haven't said a word. He's driving. He says, I think he thinks I'm really sick. He wants me to come back. He took tests. He asked lots of questions. What did he say to you? You're going to (laughs) die. The point is, relationships die, 
family closeness dies if we're not intentional about it. And sometimes we just expect because we're family that we're supposed to, well, make it a home, but sometimes it's more like a house with roommates because we're busy, we're, di- we're distracted. I'm not sure what all the issues are, but the fact of the matter is is that sometimes relationships fade. And relationships are what make a home, not the building that we live in or sleep in. Now, I mentioned that I come from somewhat of a dysfunctional family, and people uh, kind of asked me how I got into the idea of helping families succeed. That's the phrase that we do at Homeward where I work. And I, I kind of laughed because I said, out of desperation, I wanted to learn what does a healthy family look like. In fact, I would say that the number one question people ask me, as I have the privilege to be in front of some people talking about marriage and, and, uh, and family and parenting and things like that, is, you know, what are the key ingredients that make up a successful relationship? And uh, there are no simple answers there. And I don't think you would think that there's a magic wand, simple formula that would just make it all be perfect. But two words have kind of risen above the rest for me, okay? And these two words I want to talk about today, and I actually want to say to you that it's a simple, simple message, but it's not an easy message today as we talk about turning our own house into a home, see? And these two words are positive adaptability, Positive adaptability. What I have found is that a home where people live with positive adaptability is a home where people you know, can draw closer and do better. Now, as I started investigating healthy, happy relationships, I found that there were patterns. And the people who had the pattern of living with positive adaptability actually do better in their life. And the people who chose to not do the positive adaptability actually don't do as well. I mean, again, it's, it's somewhat simple. The fascinating side to it is they have the same problems. They oftentimes have the same circumstances. They just look at it differently, and so it's partly their attitude. So I've got three simple points. Like I said, the first point is be adaptable. comes right out of positive adaptability. There's a man named Neil Clark Warren, and he uh, is the founder of eHarmony.com. You've all seen him on TV. He does the commercials. He has the, you know, the the great white hair. He's 83 years old. And he's been a mentor for me for a long, long time. We went to the same grad school at Princeton. We uh, have the same interest. He actually is a, is a wonderful Christian man, and he's a marriage expert and uh, just a great guy. And I remember asking him one time in his office in West Hollywood at the Harmony, whole big structure. And I said, Neil, what's the most important trait of a healthy, vibrant relationship? Without a moment's hesitation, he said, adaptability. And then we went on to have a discussion that actually one thing that you can be sure of, that I can be sure of, is that, well, life changes and stuff happens. And every one of us are going to go through a storm. It's not if we go through a storm, it's when we go through the storm. And so a lot of times, because there are storms, we aren't adaptable enough and we tend to, to crash. The truth is, is that it might be uh, you got married. Um, you have parents. Uh, there's a sickness in your family. There's a child who's violated a value of yours. It's very key. The list could go on and on, money problems, whatever it is, whatever causes a pit in your stomach. And what we find is that people who have those issues, and those aren't good issues, and all of us have had them, but those issues are issues that if we can be more adaptable, and I'm not talking about Pollyanna, just kind of fake you know, positive thinking type things, but I'm talking about if we can be more adaptable, we're going to talk about where we get that adaptability in a moment, But if we can be more adaptable, then we'll do better than those who don't. Stable relationships are adaptable. Unstable relationships aren't willing to be adaptable. And again, that's what we'll look at today. I mean, it's not easy. 
Nobody said it was going to be easy to do family. I think I thought it was because I wasn't raised in a home that, where it was easy, but I became a Christian when I was 16 years old, and I thought, well, because I'm a Christian, then when I get married and when I have children, it's going to be easy, and it hadn't been easy. I mean, I have, Kathy and I write books on marriage, okay? And yet, we have what we call a high-maintenance marriage. Um, we have great kids who are adults and have done fine, but man, they've had bumps along the road. See? Well, basically, I like to sum it up this way, a sinner married another sinner, and then you have sinnerlings. That's the family, okay? Now, Jesus speaks to this in a pretty profound way, and he actually takes it on in a sermon that he gave. It was the most important sermon ever written and ever spoken. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Many of you are very familiar with it, and the words of the Sermon on the Mount are pretty profound. All I'm going to do is not, I'm not going to exegete this scripture as much as use it as a preface for where we're going, but this is what we want to do. He gives us instruction. It's the closing of a sermon. When you hear the closing of a sermon, when he kind of, you know, closes the Bible or whatever it is, you're going to listen to the closing of the sermon. It's often, you know, the, the part that summarizes where we've been going, and this is what Jesus did per, incredibly in Matthew 7, 24. What he said was this. In Matthew 7, 24, he gave a most profound illustration. He said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man or woman who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew against and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain comes down, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is if you apply my words then you, you're building your house on a rock, and it's a solid rock. The wind is going to come. The streams are going to rise. There's going to be storms. But you're going to bend, but you're not going to break. But if you build your house on the sand, then it's going to crash. Some of you have built your house on the sand. I know there are parts of my house that I have built on sand, and it didn't go so good. See. So like I said, it's not if storms come, it's, it's, it's when the storms come. Now, what's fascinating about that is if we build our house on the rock, we've got to be people who are adaptable because, again, we're in relationships with people. Our, our, our family is different. I mean, Kathy and I got married, and we are really, really different. In fact, we drive each other nuts sometimes. We've been married, like I said, 44 years. We can drive each other nuts. I'm an, I'm an extrovert, and Kathy's an introvert. Right there, that's a problem. Okay, because when we first got married, I loved her introversion. She would listen to my stories, and she's just so deep, and I loved all of that. And then we'd go to a party, and she'd sit on a couch talking to one person, having a meaningful conversation, and I would have a shallow conversation with everybody. And I couldn't understand why she didn't go and have shallow conversations with everybody. We'd get in the car, and I'd say, did you meet everybody? And she'd say, no, but I had a profound you know, conversation. Like, she didn't even care that she didn't meet everybody. Well, that drove me nuts. She's a detailed person. I'm less detailed. She would call it responsible and not as responsible, but we are not going there today, okay? <laughs> Kathy, she's real. She's a realist. She's not negative, but she's a realist. I'm the eternal optimist. I drive her nuts. I'm an early morning person. And so I wake up and I say, good morning, God. She wakes up and goes, good God, morning, you know? <laughs> And then we sort of, you know, meet halfway someplace. 
My kids, same thing. I mean, it's amazing to me, and I know some of you have children, it's amazing to me that children can be so different coming out of the same place. I mean, our Christy, uh, for example, we, I write books on sexuality. You know, I, she, she uh, I think, had mentioned that, that I've, there's some books that I've written, and I write books on sexuality like God Made Your Body for little kids, three to five, uh, you know, what, what does a Christian family look like, and, you know, kind of those kind of things for little kids, and then older kids, we talk about it all. So at age 11, Kathy took my oldest daughter away, Christy, on a trip because she was going to read the book on sex. And so we figured the best way to do it was go to a kind of a nice hotel, have a nice dinner, go shopping and buy her an outfit to make this thing easier, okay? And then they open up the book and they start reading and it's amazing. Kathy calls me, she goes, oh my gosh. You know, Christy just engaged with me. It was phenomenal. I'm like, wow. Christy came back kind of different. It was great, okay? Becca, two years later, she goes on the same trip, same hotel. They get an outfit, they go to dinner. And then Kathy starts reading the book, and Becca, who's now a Christian psychologist, which is funny about that, is she goes, this is totally inappropriate, Mom. Don't read anymore. <laughs> then Kathy kept reading with her, and Becca's hands are like this, and she, and she finally says, God wants you to stop. <laughs> Plus, it's gross. <laughs> Heidi, two years later, 222. Heidi, two years later, her birthday is October 31st, Halloween baby of all things. And of course, she thought Halloween was all for her. And she actually made extra, uh, you know, she'd go, you know, trick or treating and then she would go, Happy Halloween, trick or treat, it's my birthday. So she would come back with like more candy than the other girls. <laughs> then I found out later that my girls started lying and saying it was their birthday too. See, it's the trick for some of you who still go trick or treating. Um, but anyway, she says to Kathy, it's about August, and she says, are you going to take me, and are we going to read the book? <laughs> and Kathy goes, yes, we'll do it sometime around your birthday. And she goes, well, Mom, um, are you going to buy me an outfit? Yeah. Is there any way you could take me earlier? Because school's starting, and I really need an outfit. <laughs> Plus, I already know all that stuff because, Lily, my sister's told me everything. <laughs> so Kathy gets there. She opens the book, and pretty much Heidi goes, so what do you want to know, Mom? You know, she, all three of them approached even that subject differently is what I'm saying. And so when we approach things differently, if you would, we have to be understanding that there's a principle here that your family is not going to be the same as you. My family doesn't think the same way as me. My family doesn't react the same way as me. And my extended family the same way. So here's the principle. If you can get this principle, it is worth you coming to church today. Are you ready for it? Does it really matter? I mean, honestly, does it really matter? Now, some things matter. Please hear this. Drug addiction matters. Painful, painful situations matter. Adultery uh, matters. Abuse matters. But most things don't really matter, is what I'm saying. And if we live in a home that where everything matters, it quickly becomes a house because people start running from us. So does it really matter? Let's, let's take an important issue. Uh, for those of you who are married, of the toothpaste tube, sharing the toothpaste tube. That's an important issue, okay? Let's say that you squeeze the toothpaste tube from the middle, right? And you've always done that. That's how you did it. And then you get married and you find that your spouse rolls the toothpaste tube neatly. May I add, as Jesus would do. <laughs> I mean, does it really matter? I mean, buy two tubes of toothpaste. That's what Kathy and I had to do because it kind of mattered to us. She kept squeezing in the middle and was driving me nuts. I'm like, what is wrong with this person? <laughs> She's in deep sin. 
for doing it that way. And then finally, I noticed that there was a Jim tube of toothpaste and a Kathy tube of toothpaste. It doesn't really matter. Okay. Now, Dr. Neil Warren went on to say when he was talking about adaptability, and I love this quote, this was in the conversation, I kind of wrote this down afterwards, but he said, if I could give one gift to every couple on their wedding day and for every family relationship, I'd wrap up a large box filled with adaptability because no matter how good your relationship is, you'll have to be flexible enough to change yourself and at least tolerate your partner's or your family's differences. Really, that's one of the secrets to this. I told you it was going to be simple. It's, it's not necessarily evil, uh, e uh, easy. Uh, Winston Churchill said this, and I like this quote. He said, you will never reach your destination if you stop and throw stones at every dog that barks. Too many people and family, and especially even around Christmas, we're throwing stones at every dog that's barking, and we're not getting to our destination. And so we move from having a home to actually just having a house. And so what I'm saying today is that when we're more adaptable, that's going to be better. Adaptability is important. Be adaptable. Adaptable families don't whine. Adaptable families don't blame or they don't shame. So you be adaptable. Now, again, it's not easy if you're some kind of a control person. Um, it's not, but it is a necessary ingredient to a successful relationship. See? Now, the second one is just as easy, I mean, just as simple, not as easy, um, and that's be positive. Be positive. Some of you are filling that out in your notes right now. Be positive. Be adaptable. Be positive. Come to find out, positivity is the twin sibling to adaptability. Now, what's important to understand is that positivity involves the emotional climate of your relationships in your family, in, if you're married in your relationship. What, what's your emotional climate like right now? It's never going to be perfect. Please don't hear that from me, that you walk out and go, man, I'm a failure. No, but there's an emotional climate, and you can tell a lot about a family, you can tell a lot about a relationship by the emotional climate that takes place in there. Now, Dr. John Gottman, he's one of the leading researchers in the world when it comes to relationships, Jewish guy out of the University of Washington, great guy, incredible. But one of the things that Gottman says is that one of the main differences of a stable or an unstable home, a stable or an unstable relationship, uh, is the positivity that you have to your, toward your loved ones. Okay, And that's a big deal. Turns out that positivity is a choice. You know, I, I say this a lot of times, but your circumstance may not change. And I'm sorry if you have a circumstance that can't change. Your circumstance may not change. But your attitude can change, and that makes all the difference in the world. And I really think that if you're going to build your home on the rock, for some of us, we have to change our attitude, and we have to be more positive. Now, again, this isn't mind over matter stuff. The beauty of it, as the Lord spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount, was that he's going to come alongside of us. He's going to help us. He's going to help us you know, make this work. But to do that, we also have to have some action there, because life is more about uh, perspective than it is about circumstances. And people who choose positive adaptability toward their family are just simply happier people, and so is their home. It's actually called learned optimism. One of the things, again, that Dr. Neil uh, Clark Warren taught me was that, take, for example, communication. That's a trait. That's You, you want to be compatible with your communication in your family. He goes, it's a learned trait. It's not something you inherit. I will never be an introvert. I mean, I, can, I act like an introvert sometimes, but I'm an extrovert. Kathy will never be an extrovert. That's not a learned trait. That's just 
who she is. However, when it comes to being adaptable and being positive, it's actually a learned trait. It's learned optimism. And if that comes naturally to you, then fantastic. But if it doesn't come naturally to you and you tend to be more negative, then you're going to have to work on this because that's really critical. I'm thinking about my mom. Again, my mom, oh man, what a great woman she was. She passed away. But she was the one who, who was optimistic in our family, even in the midst of four of us boys um, and my dad. And so what she did was she kind of, she took the lead. Now, I'm sure that there are times when she uh, realized that she was just being intentional about it because it wasn't easy. I never thought about adaptability and positivity and all that growing up. It just wasn't a part of me. I didn't think about what she was going through you know, with an alcoholic husband and staying with him for 53 years. He, he ended up becoming a Christian. He ended up getting sober. And uh, it's a great story, but the truth of the matter is um, those were tough times. Somebody would knock on the door, a friend of mine, and you know, when I'm in high school, is Jim here? No, he's down at the gym playing basketball. Well, can I just come in and hang out with you, Mrs. Burns? She had this welcoming warmth. She made our house a home. My dad didn't. I didn't. My brothers didn't. It was one person. And so when you're saying, oh, man, I hope my husband hears this, or I hope my wife hears this, or my kids, they need to hear this, or my parents. No, what I'm saying is one person can make a difference. And I watched my mom transform our home because she was willing to do something like that, and I think that you can do the same thing. Now, fascinating enough, there, this man, John Gottman, talks about the magic ratio. And what he's developed, and this is really interesting, and this is scientific, but what he's developed is if you have five positive interactions to one negative interaction in a relationship, that's the magic ratio, okay? Now, that's hard to do in a family because there's chaos and tension and stress sometimes in the family, and we bring that into the home where we sometimes don't bring it to work or we don't bring it to school or whatever, see? But what he said is he's never seen relationships, you know, falter when it's five to one, okay? You know what he says about one to one? He says, that's when you're headed for a divorce, or that's when the family is just living in a house. Even one-to-one. Now, there's relationships in here that are, you know, more negative than they are positive as well. Those don't work. They're not healthy. And so this magic ratio makes a big difference. Five-to-one. Now, let me speak to negativity for a moment, okay? Now, some of you in here might struggle with this message because you maybe do slightly go toward negativity. Well, let me just tell this, tell you this. I'll tell you because your family may not, but negativity kills relationships. Flee from it. In fact, the Bible says in Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling and complaining. Now, there's a difference from being concerned. There's a difference from being, um, you know, a person who's going to set boundaries to just being a grumbler and a complainer. And what that is, is that becomes our reflex reaction. What's your reflex reaction in relationships? How do you, what's your reflex reaction? Does it go negative or does it go positive? My mom had a reflex reaction of going positive. She was a realist and she looked at some of the issues in our family and had to deal with it, but her realism helped her become a person who had a reflex reaction of going positive. Some of us have this reflex reaction of going negative, and like I said, negative, negativity can kill a relationship quicker than a wildfire. And, frankly, we have to, again, like I said, flee from it. This may sound like an oversimplification, but negativity will devour the happiness of a home quicker than most anything. Now, if you're negative Nancy or you're negative Ned, you know what? People are fleeing from you. Maybe they're running to the computers. Maybe they're running to the rooms. Maybe they're running to a phone. Maybe they're running to work. Maybe they're running to church. Maybe they're running someplace, but they're running from you. 
because they don't want to be around that, so they, they tend to withdraw, and it could be all kinds of ways that they withdraw, some not so healthy. And what's fascinating about pessimism, if you would, if that's your view of the world, and you view it in a negative light, then it becomes what we call the self-fulfilling prophecy. You become what you've been thinking about. In fact, the Bible says in Proverbs 23.7 in the New King James Version, as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Emerson, great writer, quoted that scripture and then summarized it by saying, in other words, we become what we think about all day long. And some of us stew in negativity. So why was given the topic to speak today And I love this topic because I really do think that we can change our houses into homes by bringing more warmth, by bringing more of an atmosphere of of positivity, if you would. Now, you have problems and you have patterns, right? A problem is something that maybe we can go to Starbucks and we can sit around and we can kind of talk about these problems. We could probably get answers to your problems. It's harder when we talk about patterns, and I, I started talking about patterns here. So some of us have some patterns in our family. Some of us have some patterns in our relationships. I'm looking at some young people out here. If you develop patterns, it kind of becomes your reflex reaction. So if those patterns aren't going well, then you're going to carry that into your next you know, part of life. It could be if you're a high school student into college and then into perhaps marriage and workforce and, and the whole thing, and sometimes that's not good. So let's deal with our problems, but it's the patterns that I'm most concerned about. Let me ask you a question. What, what are your negativity patterns. Do you know what they are? Do you know what your triggers are that cause you to go negative? Every single one of us have triggers. I didn't know mine. All of a sudden, I had to start thinking about it. What are, what are my triggers? You know what my triggers are? When I'm hungry, angry, lonely, tired. I get hangry, right? That says halt. And for me, I need to halt and, t- and change my reflex reaction, Okay. What are your negativity blind spots? Now, you have blind, they're called blind spots because we're blind to them sometimes. You know who tells you what they are? Your family. <laughs> and they're probably right much of the time. Maybe we get defensive, but we need to hear what those are because studies show, and I think this is so fascinating, that we are typically more negative than we think we are. Isn't that interesting? And when you go negative, well, what's your real desire? Is your desire to prove that you're right or improve your relationship with that family member? A lot of us want to prove that we're right. And you can't prove that you're right and improve the relationship. They both, you know, don't work at the same time many times, see. Now, my daughter, Becca, I mentioned she's a therapist. And she's actually been to this church. She loves this church as much as I do. She thinks it's awesome. And uh, she specializes with working with adolescents, kids who, uh, mainly girls who cut themselves and have eating disorders and all that kind of you know, fun stuff. She's really brilliant, actually. And she taught me a new word that's just moved into the English language dictionary, okay? And I'm going to teach it to you today. It's called awfulize. Awfulize. Look at it. It's a verb. It's informal. And what you do is you imagine a situation to be as bad as it can possibly be. Are you an awfulizer? The illustration they gave in the dictionary is I awfulized the upcoming confrontation I was planning to have with my spouse. So, so do you awfulize? Do you go negative and then you, you make it awful? Okay. Well, I think sometimes we do that. I mean, my husband is late home, coming home from work late again. He's probably having an affair. 
You know, my son is going to impregnate the entire fifth grade class. <laughs> we will never get out of debt. We will never get along. Never. Well, if you awfulize, then, you know, things aren't working well for you, are they? Do you awfulize? What do you awfulize about? Is it working for you? Is it building your house on the rock or is it building your house on the sand when you awfulize? Now, I have the answer for you. You know, sometimes pastors, we don't always have the answer, okay? The scripture has answer. But I have the answer for you. And what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to actually put you into a counseling situation. I'm going to show you in a moment. A counseling situation that is much longer. We're going to do it in about two minutes. A woman is talking to a therapist, okay? And I think the therapist gives some good advice. Now, if you happen to be, you know, a a clinical psychologist in here, you're going to think this guy's a little too oversimple, I would imagine. But I think it's a really important advice for those who awfulize, okay? Are you ready for it? Now, by the way, if you're over 40, you're going to know who the therapist is. If you're under 40, you're not going to have a clue, okay? His name is Bob Newhart. Here, let's watch Bob. Tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, Well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. (laughs) I just, I start thinking about being buried alive and I begin to panic. Has has anyone ever ever tried to, to bury you alive in a box? No, no, but truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. So what, what you're saying is you're, uh, you're claustrophobic. Uh, yes. Yes, that's it. All right. Well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. Well, shall I uh, write them down? Well, it, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most We find most people can, uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay, here, you're there. Stop it! <laughs> I'm sorry? Stop it! Stop it? Yes, S-T-O-P, new word, IT. So, what are you saying? <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. I, I, I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. Stop it. So, I should just stop it. There you go. I mean, you, 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 you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that... Sounds, sounds frightening. <laughs> yes. Then stop it. <laughs> if you're an awfulizer, what are you going to do? Let me hear it one more time. Stop it. Now, again, I realize there's some other issues, and some people might want to say, but I have a kid who, or I have a spouse who, or I have an ex who, or I have something who. What I'm saying is, how's it working for you? And so, truly, we want to be positive, we want to be adaptable, but we also want to be kind. And actually, Clayton did a good job last week, and he he referred to some of this. 
But what I want to say to you is kindness matters in a home as much as anything else. Now, the Bible says this, and it's important for you to get these next four Bible verses. Number one is Ephesians 4.32. And Ephesians 4.32, great advice, says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. So we are called by God to be people who are kind. But the reason we can be kind is because God has been kind to us. The reason we can forgive is because God has forgiven us. I'm arrogant at times where I don't want to forgive Kathy or I don't want to forgive my kids when in fact God is, I'm begging God to forgive me. And so in kindness, kindness is generosity. So be kind to one another. You can do it because of what God has done for you. And if you say, well, they're not kind to me, well, then you be kind anyway. That's the point. It's not about how they're treating you. It's how you treat them. Because like I said, one person can make a difference in a family and can transform a family from a house to a home. Now, the other scripture is a scripture. It's actually the definition of love. You, you know, you'd be familiar with it if you hang around the church at all. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says, love is patient. And then the next phrase is, love is kind. And so really, if you love each other, you're going to be kind to one another. Who are we least kind to? Sometimes we're least kind to the people in our home. We're not mean-spirited to somebody outside the home, but we get mean-spirited inside the home. Kathy, when we first got married, she used to always say, Jim, do you love me? And I thought that was the weirdest thing. I mean, I told her on our wedding day, I love you, so if I was going to change my mind, I was going to let her know. <laughs> but it was some kind of insecurity that she had. And so what I needed to do was show her kindness because I couldn't just say, I love you. I did, and I meant it. But she, what she really wanted to see was kindness. You show your love by being kind to someone. It's an act of the will where you show kindness. Now, again, Jesus was not a namby-pamby sissy, but he showed kindness. At the same time, he had boundaries, and that's what we're talking about here. The next scripture is found in Galatians 5, and 23, all famous scriptures. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So you tell me that you're filled with the Holy Spirit as a Christian, that you're walking in the Spirit of God. Then fine. Then how we'll know that isn't by your words, but by your actions, and that's if you show kindness. You can't be mean and be filled with the Spirit. So people who walk around and say, I'm filled with the Spirit and I'm walking in the Spirit, great. Show us that with your kindness as well as those other great words of the fruit of the Spirit. And you say, well, but they're not being kind to me. And you say, that doesn't matter. I'm going to be kind to you. Because you get that from the Holy Spirit. Now, if we had more time, we could talk about how the Holy Spirit empowers you toward kindness to your family and how that makes a difference and how you don't have to do it on your own. This is not something you just pull up from the bootstraps. But part of that is making the decisions to live your life on the rock instead of on the sand, and we drift. And so we need course corrections. This is a course correction for me. I think about that scripture a lot. The last scripture is Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, that would be you, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So again, what we're going to do is we're going to wake up in the morning and we're going to choose. It's an act of the will to be kind. If my wife or my kids are not being kind to me, then I'm going to have to have an act of the will. I'm going to choose to clothe myself with kindness. And again, those other phrases too. Kindness really does matter. And fascinating enough, kindness matters in every relationship you have. Kindness can change everything. Kindness 
basically melts relational walls. Now, I, I told you it was simple, but not easy. It's not easy to be kind to someone, especially if someone has done you wrong. And yet, I think that, that that's what the Lord is calling us to do. I have a friend, her name is Shanti Feldhahn. Some of you maybe have read some of her books. She's an awesome writer and a great friend. And we were speaking at something in Peoria, Illinois. And um, it was actually 3,800 women, so I called it the Estrogen Conference. <laughs> and it was, I'm telling you. And I was sitting in the back room with Shanti and her husband, Jeff, and she had just finished a book called The Kindness Challenge, and she was going to speak later that night. I was speaking, and then she was going to speak. Um, and she was going to speak on The Kindness Challenge, and, and I said, how's that going? Because I had endorsed her book. And she said, it's great. Anybody who lives with the, by The Kindness Challenge, as we started doing research, she has a master's degree from Harvard. She says, we started doing research, 89.3% of the people who, who live by The Kindness Challenge say that their relationships are better. I went, whoa, whoa, whoa. See? So I want to give you, in conclusion... Three elements to the kindness challenge that are actually Shanti's, but I think it goes right along with what I've been saying. And then I'm going to challenge you to do this in the next 30 days. And I'm actually saying do it during Christmas season. That's even harder because you've got the weird family members coming over for Christmas. <laughs> At least we do. I just have always hoped that I'm not the weird family member, you know? Always is my fear. So first one, first element. Nix the negative. Hmm. I know this isn't going to be easy for some of you, but next the negative. And actually, here's what you want to do. Say nothing negative either to your family member or about them with someone else. Now, again, if you have younger kids, you're going to set boundaries, but you're just not going to do it in a negative way. You can, you can actually set boundaries. You can have discipline in a home and, and still nix the negative. See? So nix the negative. I'm challenging you to do that in the next 30 days. And if you mess up, then just start again. This may take you 48 days. I think it took me about 48 days to make that happen. Secondly is practice praise. To practice praise, what you're going to do is every day you're going to find a positive thing that you can sincerely praise or affirm your family member. You're going to tell them and you're going to tell somebody else. I decided to do it with all my family. And you know what I did is in the morning, I take a little time with the Lord. I read through the one-year Bible, and I read a devotion every day, and I keep in a journal. And I would, pray, I would write what I'm going to say to my family. I never told them I was doing this, by the way. Kathy, about halfway through, said, I just really feel like we're in a good place right now. She didn't get that what she was getting from me was more praise than she usually gets. But you know what? Even if she wouldn't have understood that, or even if I never got anything back from her, I should have still praised her. Can you do that for 30 days? And lastly, carry out kindness. Every day, do a small act of kindness, generosity for your family member. It's random kindness. What can you do to show random kindness? Kathy said, I did this. We were talking about this as I was kind of prepping this message. And she said, well, you showed kindness. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, remember when I wanted to do 20 minutes a week on a devotional, and you, I know, didn't really want to do that. We had this spiritual mentor of ours, and we said, what do you do for spiritual, in, you know, intimacy? It's the least developed area of intimacy in oftentimes a marriage or a family. And they said, well, we spend 20 minutes a week. And in my mind, I went, 20 minutes a week? How wimpy is that? And then I went, we're not doing that. I mean, we pray. We, we you know, we engage in ministry, but we weren't doing that. And she said, I knew you didn't want to do it, but you did it anyway. We ended up writing a book called Closer. It's one of the best-selling marriage devotionals. We challenge people to spend 20 minutes a week. And funny enough, in that devotional, what we talk about is that in those 20 minutes, 
we don't remember what we ate last week, but it nourishes for the day, and that's what it was. So I don't know what your random act of kindness. I didn't even know that was a random act of kindness. Can you do it? Can you nix the negative? Can you practice praise? Can you carry out a random act of kindness? I think you can. So no closing with a, you know, kumbaya or a big, you know, message or, you know, big, you know, story. I want to close with the kindness challenge. And I really want to challenge you as we pray to be women and men who would take this on. Move, if your house is a house and it's not the home, move it toward being a home. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you so much for the fact that we can't build our house on a rock without your help. And Lord, there's some people here who are going through some storms big time right now. And I know it's a simple message, but it wasn't easy, and we're going to call upon you to help us. And Lord, I pray that there would be men and women here who would take on the kindness challenge and that they could look back even in 30 days and say, I'm building my house on a rock and not on the sand. Lord, I pray for the men and women who maybe even now, as we finish with one song, do they need to pray? Do they need to pray in one of the zones? Do they need to go back to the welcome center? Do they need to, uh, what do they need to do? What do we need to do? Lord, speak to our hearts right now and tell us. Maybe it's a phone call. Maybe it's an apology. Maybe it's an act of kindness. But Lord, you can speak to our hearts, usually not shouting, but usually whispering. But God, we open our hearts and our lives to you today, and we open our family to you. It's so important. We love you. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, amen. Thanks so much.